Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where leading authors share objects that have inspired their creative process. I'm Katie Brand and I'm delighted to be joined by an Australian author who's written six novels, including The Book Thief, which spent 500 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. His latest much-anticipated book is entitled Bridge of Clay. It's Marcus Suzak. Marcus, welcome. Thanks, Katie. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. And as you probably know, what makes the Penguin Podcast particularly special is that our guests choose a handful of objects that have inspired their work. And Marcus has chosen items including a surfboard fin, a photo of an Australian racehorse and a stone in the shape of a Zippo lighter. And we'll uncover why those inspire him in a moment. Uh, But before we do... Marcus, I don't think we've ever had a guest on whose new book is more suited to our podcast than yours, actually, because in a way, important objects are a massive part of Bridge of Clay. There's a typewriter, the bridge, of course, a wooden peg. And without giving too much away about the book, just give us a bit of a synopsis of Bridge of Clay, if you don't mind, and why these objects are so important and why you want them to take centre stage in the book. It's actually really nice to be able to talk about the book in this kind of way where you're not saying, right, when people say to you, give us the elevator pitch. Oh, <laughs> no, know, that's way, awful. Uh, uh, yeah, and I, I go, what's an elevator pitch? Yeah. <laughs> and then it takes me a while to figure out what they mean. It's really a book about memory and stories and how we're all really just made of stories. And so Clay is moving forward all the time, building a bridge, but he's building his whole life into it. And so the history of him and his family is being built into that bridge and it's really made of him. And the objects in the book, everything from a clothesline peg to the to a Zippo lighter, you know, even the iron token from the Monopoly board are actually really important because they're moments that remind him of where he's come from and who he is. Mm. It's almost like an epic family story of Clay Dunbar and his brothers, but also his parents. There's a literal bridge, but it's a figurative and metaphorical bridge as well, it seems to me. Yeah, that was what I realised when I was writing the book, that I think we become who we are long before we're born. And mm-hmm. so that was why it was really important to tell the parents' stories of Clay. It's like a tidal flow in the book where Clay's moving out and then his mother's story, Penny Dunbar, her story's coming in. And Mm. then we see Michael's story come in while Clay and he start to develop a new relationship when they're building the bridge together. So it was more just that if you take stories away from us, there isn't really that much left. And it's very evocative, the whole book, and you build it so well in the sense of the Dunbar boys, this kind of ragtaggle group living in a house mysteriously for some reason apparently alone and then this mysterious figure comes in who you call the murderer that we later discover I hope I'm not giving too much away here uh, is their father and then we gradually uncover why they refer to him as the murderer and then he makes this offer of building a bridge and asks if someone will come and help him and Clay is the one who volunteers but there is this tension isn't there all the time with the father and I found the backstory of the mother and father Michael and Penelope incredibly moving. Really the heart of the book is Penny their mum there is a really quiet heart there that is this woman who looks perennially fragile but she's a real survivor. And she has made a huge journey in her life hasn't she? Yeah and she's come from Eastern Europe to live in Australia and and she's brought the Iliad and the Odyssey with her because her dad used to read it to her. And so I loved the idea of a kind of suburban epic 
where we often think we live these ordinary mundane lives, but there is a real bigness to our lives at certain moments. Something to sort of almost shake you awake sometimes, don't you? Yeah, I mean, and we live and we, and people die on us and I love the idea, and I write at home in general, so I love the idea that we actually need chaos in our lives because that's where our stories are. And I think when there's something at stake, we find out who we are. It's like when you move house or something, you kind of find out who you are. Like mm. us, we move house and we go, I think we're, we're hoarders. Yes. Well, <laughs> and- I, I am as well. And I, I was just actually... Funnily enough, thinking exactly that, what you've just said, because we've just recently done a big move and I ended up in our house that we've just left in the loft with boxes of stuff that wasn't just mine. I ended up inadvertently becoming the family archivist. (laughs) And so this notion of the resonance of objects, I feel very much. And there was crazy stuff in there I've never seen before. And it does vibrate in your hand sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think... It's nice to run into those accidental truths where you say, oh, this is who we are. And Penny says that to Clay at one point. She tells him about his father and some of the things he didn't know about his father and how he he did bury his dog and a snake in this old backyard of a town, but also a typewriter. She tells him how much she loves those stories and she says, it's actually who we are. That's why it's nice to be here and talk about these things because... It's not so much the objects themselves, it's what they remind us of. It's a life. I completely agree that objects, they're the sort of the architecture of a life and of your novel. Uh, And so let's move to your first object, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a picture of a racehorse. We haven't actually got the racehorse in the room. Um, (laughs) Tell me about this picture of this racehorse that's significant. Wouldn't it be great if you could just go, right, let's bring him in. But Farlap, the iconic horse of Australia, could just be standing here. I have this photo of Farlap and his strapper, Tom Woodcock. They had this special relationship. It was back in the Great Depression. And actually, there are such great stories about Farlap. And he's actually mentioned in Bridge of Clay. And Carrie, the girl who is Clay's best friend, she tells him stories about Farlap and all these other racehorses. So Farlap is almost the perfect story, and that's why we love him so much. He was a rags-to-riches horse. He was useless, but then he ended up having this amazing heart. He was given so much weight in races in Australia that he went to America where he won this magnificent race with half his hoof hanging off practically, and then he died very soon after. There are two stories about him that I really love, but one of them is that the Prime Minister of the time, Joseph Lyons, he came down the courthouse steps. He just won a high court decision on something that he really wanted to get through. And a journalist said to him, oh, how do you feel you got the, you got this through? And he, and he said, what good is winning a high court decision when Farlap's dead? <laughs> and there's something very Australian about that. Yes. There's just something quite beautiful. And, there, and again, it's just one more story that adds to the legend mm. of the horse. Do you keep an image of Farlap around you when you're working? Obviously, you, racehorses and racing is a big part of Bridge of Clove. This isn't just research for this book. Something about Farlap you've internalised for yourself as a writer? He was this great racehorse, but it also came at a great cost. Farlap is the image that leads to the images below the image. It's the stories under the stories that matter just as much as the story itself. But is this a sort of noble 
quality to it in terms of the horses themselves, but also that noble determination and just nose down, get on with it, winning. And a friend of mine gave me some advice years ago about life as a writer or life in the messy, chaotic world of entertainment. It's not a competition. It's like a game of golf. You don't play the other players, you play the course. If you start being distracted by the other players, you'll either go mad or you'll fail or both. There's something about that that's like being a writer where you just get your head down and you just look straight ahead and Mm. you just can't be distracted by the others. You just have to go. Absolutely. I mean, and that's why I've I've always been attracted to to running. There's always running in my books. And Clay runs, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. And there's always training in my books. And Clay is the, the best example of that. He's always training. He's always, he just doesn't know what he's training for. Mm. Turns out it's to build a bridge. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll often run and I'll often feel like I'm training to write so that I can get to exactly what you're talking about is when you see other writers putting books out, you go, geez, she's putting another <laughs> book out. Well, it's only been six months. Mm-hmm. And if you pay attention to that, there's one thing that you have to do. You do have that field of vision where you say you just have to just this is what I have to do. I recently did some filming with a British Olympic gold medalist and he just without any warning suddenly described to the group his psychological process. He's quite well known now in this country, Greg Rutherford, who won a gold medal in the 2012 Olympics. And Mm -hmm. he started talking about the five years before that point where he was talking about how every day he went out with his dogs for two hours and all he did for two hours was picture himself winning a gold medal. And he said not only did he pick the winning and the receiving of the medal he played out in his mind every single thing that could go wrong and he would then picture himself overcoming that and still winning the gold and I actually found that incredibly moving because the level of mental discipline and I, I found it interesting in one of the interviews I read about you that you say you find writing hard and that you have this self-doubt and and I think we all do especially when we have to write on our own and then we have to put it out there and see if anyone likes it. Yeah everything is preparation mm. and uh, you can apply that to so many other things it's like at home you can go surfing you can be sitting out there on your board and it's getting to the right spot before you do the thing that you have to do mm. and then at the same time that preparation allows you to be flexible. There's a huge amount of planning that goes into a book and I've written chapter headings out over and over and over and I've got one of my notebooks here. The amount of chapter headings right up to the point where I'm editing the book, you know, before it goes to print and I'm still writing out my chapter headings just knowing where to put that last piece Mm -hmm. that's still plaguing me a little bit. And there's also that sense of once you've given it to them, you you can't get it back. Yeah, and it's funny because you were talking about that Olympic athlete because I too was sort of affected once by an Olympian and he had done all this preparation as well and he was a backstroker and he had a plan, he had a, everything was going to go and then for some reason he heard a voice in his head in the race that said, go now, as in really start pushing it now. And he said, if I had ignored that voice, I wouldn't have won. And so I guess sometimes you do all this work, all this preparation, then you have to have the confidence or that's what gives you the confidence to let the more mystical voices in. And I think that's maybe why it takes many years to really become the writer you you want to be or can be, you know, because you have to start to trust those voices, don't you? You're coming back to that centre again, what you were talking about. I look at the things that I really love and some of those things, like whether it's a book or a film, have been really commercially successful and I think you can get wrapped up in the kind of moment. 
I mean, and I'm going through that now where you have a new book out. You know, my previous book did a lot better than we ever hoped or dreamed. I mean, I thought it would die without a, sink without a trace. <laughs> and suddenly it did so much better. And then. Which you, is The Book Thief, yeah. which was just an absolute monster global hit. Well, and it, do you think part of the reason why it's taken you 13 years, I know you've been nurturing this and it's a real epic and I can see all that preparation that's gone into it, but was that part of why it's taken you a while to, to bring out a new book? I think the main reason is just that. In this book, you've got Clay who's building this bridge and that bridge is made of him and this book is kind of made of me. Mm, It's everything in me is in this book. Mm -hmm. The reason it really took me that long is because I was trying to write better than I actually am. (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, a noble pursuit. Yeah, and and, and I think that's – otherwise I think, well, what's the point? Mm. And the way I've described it is there there was a time where I did stop writing it because, uh, you know, I'd worked for a good decade or so my wife actually made me quit for a while. She just said, I think you and Clay need a break. It was really nice. Really? She talked about Clay as if he lived in the house with us, and I guess he kind of did, and, uh, and, and she was right. I actually needed to understand what it would be like to live without it before I could move on. When I was writing Bridge of Clay, I was writing for the world championship of myself. Yes. <laughs> you know? yes. And so once I understood that, and I found joy again in the struggles that came up. That's what you're alive for as a writer is to write something that you didn't know you could write. And I've realised I really only want to write books that I might not be able to write. Yes. And uh, coming back to that sort of sporting image, there was a football coach in Australia who says about his players that you've got to let them go to the dark places because it's the only way you'll find out how good they are. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I feel like that with, with writing, you've got to be prepared to fail and to, to do something that you might not be able to do because that's what makes it all the greater when you finally get there. Your next object seems to be um, connected to this period mm-hmm. where you were struggling, which is a stone, an oddly shaped stone. What, yeah. what is that? Well, it's funny because in Bridge of Clay... One of the objects in the book is a Zippo lighter and Carrie, Clay's best friend, when he goes to build the bridge, she says this unusual thing to him, don't go, Clay, don't leave me, but go. Mm. And she gives him a Zippo lighter and she writes him a letter that says everything that you do out there when you build that bridge, it'll be made of you. It'll be made of clay. And they say, don't burn your bridges, but I'm giving this to you anyway. And so she's talking about clay the name and clay the material. And she's saying that clay can be moulded into anything, but it needs fire to set it. And she's just having a joke with him, but she's, she's basically saying, make it yours and you'll be okay. So and how then, did the stone... Yeah, well, the stone came into it where I was having, you know... At one point, one of my usual miserable patches <laughs> writing the book where I was thinking, oh, I'm worthless, I'm useless. And I was down the coast and I, I was walking along the beach and I found a stone that very close to, to the shape of that. It's like a dark stone that has a, a light line across it, that line that you flick a Zippo lighter open with. And it was just a, a one small signature of a story that said, it's not supposed to be easy, but you're going to find little surprises along the way that are going to lift you up. I love the character, Carrie. She's a fascinating character and she's sort of mysterious but also completely open. Was it a deliberate decision to make a young woman in your book a jockey? How did that all come about? It's always something that leads to something that leads to something. 
Your best ideas are either accidents or formed out of necessity for a problem that you had. And I really wanted there to be a mule in this book because Clay is a really ambitious character and he wants to make this great, perfect thing. And so the other side of that is that all ambition is also an ass. And uh, and you're and, also stubborn yeah, and, and determined. Stu- yeah, and, yeah, absolutely. And so... I decided that these boys lived in a city and I thought, all right, how do I get this to happen? I thought, oh, they live in a racing precinct of the city. They live in one of those areas. And I thought, oh, Clay's best friend is a, is a girl and she's, a, she's an apprentice jockey. And what she taught me, again, was I was always trying to lovingly describe her and just describe her so perfectly. And I thought, you are not going to fall in love with her by describing her. She has to do something. Yes. And so I made her do more in the book. I think that's key. When I've written things, I've always tried to do less descriptive, less psychology. I want my characters to be defined by what they do rather than necessarily what they think about. I've always found that a very interesting way to have a character lead you through a book is how they act. I find it so easily and accidentally can happen in writing books that the characters become passive because you can do so much talking about what goes on in their head. Suddenly you find they haven't actually done anything for pages and pages and pages. You you know, you're absolutely right. I wanted there to be a great sense of life in her and a kind of ferocity as well. Yeah, and I think, oh, that's a great word, ferocity. I think there is that. You definitely captured that, which I think I responded so uh, eagerly to her in the book. There is something very essential about everybody's emotions in this book, and it is deep and quite profound, but also sometimes quite primitive. I mean, it comes down to love and hate and death and survival. And your next object, I believe, is a... So something of a symbol of having to survive. And another one of your beach discoveries, perhaps, is a surfboard fin. There are different beaches where I go down to work sometimes and where I found the stones shaped like a lighter is a it's a very wild kind of beach, but the surf there is actually a bit softer. Whereas this other beach where I found the surfboard fin, it faces south and so you get the full brunt of the ocean there and the swell often comes from the southeast and so this beach gets surf that's twice as big as everywhere else all the time and so it stood to reason that this surfboard fin washed up which almost looks like like it's made out of wood and it's an interesting material but it just shows the sort of barbarous nature of the ocean over on that side and uh one of the worst feelings in the world is being out in surf that's too big for you. Okay, yes, and, yes, I can imagine. It's a good metaphor for writing, actually, when you're trying to write above yourself, but that worst thing of, how am I actually going to get back in mm-hmm. <laughs> to shore? And it's just a almost a subliminal reminder that nothing's permanent and that things can and will go wrong. And there's actually something worth picking up in that as well. And it goes without saying, and anyone who's familiar with your work, especially the book Thief, and and in this to some extent, is the presence of death in your book. What is it about death, apart from the obvious being that we're the only animals that know we're going to die, which is obviously endlessly fascinating, Mm. but why do you choose to have it imbue your work to that extent? Strength isn't always beautiful, but fragility often is. And it's when you see the cracks in something that the light comes in that makes us see something in a different way. And you go, oh, you're not what I thought you were. Mm. It's also the idea that death is the ultimate thing that makes us value our lives. All the things that we do 
are worth something because we know we're going to die. And not that we're thinking that all the time. I mean, imagine imagine thinking that every time you do something. Well, this was good because I know I'm going to die I one know. day. <laughs> but, but at some point it's there without us knowing it. And every now and again we are reminded of that. Yeah, There is a kind of double-edged blessing cruelty to this knowledge that humans have of of impending death and I sometimes look at my dog and I feel jealous of her that she she has no idea as far as I'm aware I mean (laughs) perhaps she knows she's going to die and she hasn't let me know I think oh I'm jealous jealous that she doesn't know but then at the same time like you say I think you're absolutely right it is the knowledge of our of our death that leads humans perhaps to have achieved all the things that humans have achieved. And yeah. your um, your next object, speaking of dogs, I think, mm-hmm. is... Uh, do you ever feel, as you ever look at your dogs and think, wow, I'm a bit jealous of you living, lying there, <laughs> being fed, oh. going out on walks, just living in the present moment, having no idea what may come? <laughs> oh, exactly. So I've got these two dogs and they're both from the pound. Our first dog, who's got about eight different kind of dogs in him, he's a big, brindle, wolfish-looking thing with a big sort of dark face that that uh, and he scares a lot of people actually and the other one is a, a greyhound crossed with a lab they they do pretty much live in my office and uh which is pretty small and and just their just their dog beds take up half the room and uh, one of them is a two dollar dog with two five thousand dollar knees because he needed a knee reconstruction and so but my joke when people say oh they're beautiful dogs I say yeah thanks they've ruined my life (laughs) and uh, and uh, but I say in a good way and I tell you what they're the first thing I think of when I wake up Mm. but so yeah they they're in my office with me and uh, they're always there they're a part of my my soul now those dogs it can be good for a writer to have dogs because there's always a reason to go out and leave the the desk that you don't it doesn't yeah, have to be entirely right. self-motivated yeah and those days where you feel terrible about yourself because you're, you're so much living within yourself and you're alone that it would be easy not to leave the house at all I've got to quickly tell you this where once I did have to go out for longer than I expected to and I just had a delivery of a reprint of the book thief <laughs> and I got back home it was like it had snowed in my office <laughs> oh, yeah. it was covered in just ripped up paper and there isn't there's an author photo on the back of that book and that's just ripped in half (laughs) and just I just got in there and it was one of those moments you know where you where like when sort of irritating small things happen that's when you really lose your temper but when something so momentous happens you all you do is you just stand there and you just I stood there and I just went (sighs) and I just (laughs) closed the door and walked back out because I couldn't face it. And that, and they were both angelically just sitting there looking at me going, what? Yeah. Well, it gives you a sense of perspective suddenly on your life and what's yeah. important. Yeah, exactly. Is that why you wanted so many animals in the Dunbar house in Bridge of Clay? I just love the idea that you need chaos in your life, especially if you want to be a writer, mm. because that's where your stories are. That terrible time when you're really late to work is your best story about getting to work. The one where you had all green lights or the, the train wasn't late isn't a story at all. Mm-hmm. You think your your life is a bit all over the place and then you get an animal mm. and you bring an animal in and then you really know. And uh, that was why the Dunbar boys have everything from a goldfish, a cat, a dog, a, a pigeon and a mule. Uh, and also, you know, there's a lot of travel in the book. There's this great story of Penelope's journey from Eastern Europe. And I know that you've drawn on your family life and your parents, German and Austrian and so on. And obviously the world is 
is open to you in that way. And, and your final objects are postcards uh, stuck to your room, I think, of places around the world. What does that bring to your writing and your experience of writing? They're not signposts of where I've been. They're not, they're not trophies in any way. I think they're just... They're little reminders of the things I love, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's something kind of really aesthetic about them. And uh, one of them is a, a postcard of the the inside spiral of the Guggenheim Museum, mm. which is quite an amazing thing because it's such an odd-looking building from the outside. It reminds me of that, I think it's Beverly Hills Cop, where like, I think Eddie Murphy jokes about building a house with no corners. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like living in a donut. And you just sort of look at it and you think, God, the first time the architects took that, talk about taking a risk out mm. of your comfort zone, like you were yeah. saying earlier. We'd like to build this, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, exactly. And that's what that postcard reminds me of. But some of them then are just, you know, you go to an art gallery and there's a postcard of one of the works or or a movie, like I've got a postcard of Goodbye Lennon, mm-hmm. which was a movie that I really loved. And so I think it's the act of collecting that those yeah. postcards signify. Yeah. Not I've been there and I've done that. It's more like, oh, that was just one more little thing that I scavenged along mm-hmm. the way. I, I think that's the beauty of the postcards is, again, you, they all, they're all really different. But I think as you've been talking as well, what I'm getting is that the things that you're surrounded by, the patchwork of things, the postcards, the the dog, the far lap picture, the, the racehorse, they have all been brought together in Bridge of Clay, haven't they? It just suddenly reminded me, weirdly, don't take this the wrong way, like mm. the end of The Usual Suspects, yeah, that right. movie, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where the, he's kind of created a life out of the things that mm. he, he sees on the notice board. Yeah. And it's almost like you've brought everything about yourself and mm. the things that you're surrounded by into Bridge of Clay. And as you said, I think earlier, Bridge of Clay, the bridge is clay, but also this book, Bridge of Clay, you feel is you to some extent. Yeah, and I think what you're doing is you're actually making order out of the chaos. Mm. And I think that's what the collecting of these objects is doing. They come to you at moments where you are at times freewheeling, at times you are just, you're going for a walk along the beach, but you've got this inner maelstrom because your book isn't working and you find something and it's just one more step on the road to understanding it all and figuring it out. And what is a, a novel or a story but a collection of small objects to make one whole one? Mm. Because I think that's what we're doing our whole lives. We're collecting all of these bits and pieces that hopefully make us whole. I think I I once saw a quote about writers, which I've always loved, about how people who become writers are people who, for some reason don't mind the chaos but they want to impose order on the chaos they want to be in charge of the story we want to be able to tell the end of the story as well for some reason we we want whatever it is doesn't have to be a childhood trauma but sometimes it is but you want to be able to be in charge of the story be in charge of the chaos to some extent yeah and also to reimagine it it's what made me want to be a writer in the first place was when you're reading a novel and you know it's not true but when you're in it, you believe it. And I think, you know, the scale and the ambition and the epic nature of the book does that perfectly. And sometimes you don't learn about why an object is significant until a little later, but you know it will be. Uh, the clothes peg particularly, people will find out very movingly at the end why that's so significant. And it just builds and it builds and it builds. It's, it's a very immersive read, actually, and I can see why it's taken you so long and the amount of preparation that you put into it and the amount of yourself you've put into it. And I think you said in 
the audio book when you were recording that you know you felt like somehow it would be the last time you'd be working with clay in some respects. I mean, the thing about writing this book is that it was really, really difficult, and I was in those dark places that I was talking about, and and I was trying to find out if I could do it and if I could touch that thing just for a moment that it was always out of reach. I, I've come out of it actually feeling really happier about writing than I ever have before. Well, and, that's great. Uh, and just realising that even the struggles are, are the joy of it. I'm looking forward to writing again without any kind of you know self-imposed pressure yeah. this time. And uh, one of the great Australian playwrights is David Williamson and he, he said, oh, you know, you meet these writers and they say every word is like a drop of blood on the page. And then he just says, oh, bullshit. You <laughs> do it because you love it. Yeah. And I think both things are true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's very insightful. Um, I would love before we wrap up just to hear an extract from the book. Uh, I believe we have a clip from the audio book. Mm-hmm. Uh, to play in. So let's have a listen to, uh, before we leave Clay and Bridge of Clay and you, Marcus, uh, and have uh, a listen to an extract from the audiobook. This is uh, Bridge of Clay and uh, this is where Clay arrives in the world for the first time. So let's have a listen to that. As the story went, when Penny was in labour with Clay, they left Henry, Rory and me with Mrs Chilman. On the drive to the hospital, they nearly pulled over. Clay was coming quickly. As Penny would later tell him, the world had wanted him badly. But what she didn't do was ask why. Was it to hurt, to humiliate, or to love and make great? Even now it's hard to decide. It was morning, summer and humid, and when they made it to the maternity ward, Penny was shouting, still walking, and his head was starting to crown. He was very nearly torn rather than born, as if the air had reefed him out. In the delivery room, there was a lot of blood. It was splayed on the floor like murder. As for the boy, he lay in the muggy atmosphere and was strangely, quietly smiling, his blood-curdled face dead silent. When an unsuspecting nurse came in, she stood open-mouthed and blaspheming. She stopped and said, Jesus Christ. It was our mother, all dizzy, who replied. I hope not, she said, and our father still grinned. We know what we did to him. Uh, And that was a clip from the audiobook of Bridge of Clay, written and read by my guest today, Marcus Suzak. So thank you very much for that. And thank you for talking to me today. It's been absolutely fascinating. Oh, and I've loved it. And thank you. Thank you very much. Remember, if you like what you hear, please do share, rate and review the Penguin podcast. And as a special treat, I have interviewed the fantastic Michael Morpurgo talking about his version of The Snowman, inspired by the original by Raymond Briggs. Please make sure you subscribe to the Penguin podcast so that you don't miss out. Coming shortly. Shakespeare's sonnets are some of the nation's favourite lines of verse, but the Elizabethan language can make it difficult to really understand them. Many guides offer to clarify the meaning, but lose the magic of the words by explaining them away. James Anthony has done something boldly different, rewriting the whole series of sonnets using modern language. 137. Thou blind fool, love, what dost thou to mine eyes that they behold and see not what they see?
They know what beauty is, see where it lies, yet what the best is, take the worst to be. If eyes, corrupt by overpartial looks, be angered in the bay where all men ride, why of eyes falsehood hast thou forged hooks whereto the judgment of my heart is tied? Why should my heart think that a several plot which my heart knows the wide world's commonplace? Or mine eyes, seeing this, say this is not, to put fair truth upon so foul a face? In things right true, my heart and eyes have erred, and to this false plague are they now transferred. 137. Oh, Cupid, you're a fool. Why trick my eyes to look at something that they cannot see? True beauty they can quickly visualise, yet they observe the worst things yearningly. So, if my eyes, corrupted by her beauty, are so besotted, though she sleeps around, why have my faulty eyes felt it's their duty to make my heart's thoughts equally unsound? Why should my heart believe she's only mine, when deep inside it knows she is a hooker? Or seeing this, why do my eyes decline to tell my heart she's really not a looker? Thus far my heart and eyes have chosen well, but they've succumbed to that foul bitch's spell. The audiobook of Shakespeare's sonnets is narrated by Stephen Fry and Papa Esiedu and is available to download now.